Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are going to be talking about the scriptural data for and against the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, last week we talked about the historical theology of this doctrine, which was probably a little bit of a culture shock for some of you as you, you discover that a good amount of church history holds to this doctrine and even Protestants have held to it. So today we're going to be discussing the scriptural theology. Uh, what are the reasons that people have held to this? What are the reasons why people don't hold to it? And the way we are going to do that is by looking at three big arguments and discussing them. I'll try to give you the for and against the perpetual virginity of Mary and these arguments and then give you my commentary. And so as we begin, you still don't know my position, but as we go through it, it'll become more clear and then I'll give you a conclusion. This episode may be a little bit shorter today. And next week, we will talk about Apollinarianism. I cannot say that word for the life of me this previous week for whatever reason. Don't get it. Anyway, uh, we're going to be discussing that specifically in relation to William Lane Craig's proposal of Neo-Apollinarianism. So we'll talk about that next week. And then I'm going to do an episode on Christ is the Law. I put up a uh, post saying, you know, does this seem like an interesting episode uh, apart from the big controversy with the chosen that we discussed and um, all that stuff on the page where we're just going to be talking about, is there a theological ground for the statement in general, because there's been pushback on the theological statement, apart from the book of Mormon and apart from the chosen and all of that stuff. And if you didn't see any of that, you can go see it on uh, Facebook and Instagram. It was a, um, it was a fun couple days pushing back against, against the majority Whenever I say fun, I mean it wasn't. So, yeah. Today, the Perpetual Virginity of Mary, Part 2, the Scriptural Theology. And let's go ahead and jump into it. So, again, we are going to give you the three big arguments, um, either beginning with the four or against, and then the last one's kind of mixed because that's just the best way I could organize it. And this is really just to facilitate a deeper um, framework for you to engage with it. Uh, because there are more nuanced debates um, in this topic, such as you know the discussion of the the different Marys at the tomb and how many Marys were there and stuff like that. And so I'm going to link a debate between a Catholic and a Reformed Baptist on the subject in the description for this episode, so you can just click on that and go watch that. Um, and hopefully this episode will give you kind of a framework to understand what's going on in the debate before the debate even happens. So let's go ahead and get into it. And remembering that the perpetual virginity of Mary is the idea that Mary was, of course, a virgin at the conception of Jesus and at the birth of Jesus. Uh, but the perpetual virginity of Mary teaches that she remained a virgin for the rest of her life afterwards. She never had relations with Joseph, nor had any other children. So the first argument against this doctrine is the text of Scripture has a few texts, or several texts, rather, that indicate that Jesus had brothers, such as Matthew 12, 46, Matthew 13, 55 through 56, Galatians 1, 19, etc. In fact, even um, the agnostic Bart Ehrman, when he's defending the historical existence of Jesus, um, he has a book on that, we discussed that in our three episodes on that topic, he appeals to this fact that Paul knew a brother of Jesus, right? And so going along with this argument against the perpetual virginity of Mary, 
some would be quick to say, yes, the term for brothers and sisters, Adelphos and Adelphe, can mean something other than brother and sister, but it's not used that way in the New Testament, and the New Testament writers could have used the term cousin if that's what they meant. Okay, so let's let's look at the other side. So this is for the perpetual Virgin Mary on the same topic. There's two solutions that they present in regards to this argument. First, they would say that it is possible that these are step-siblings from a prior marriage of Joseph, or this term is indeed a term being used for kinsmen or cousins because of the Greek term's fluidity. So to restate that last one, because that one's not as clear, um, there is an argument that Again, the Greek term behind the word brother, Adelphos, can mean cousin or kinsman, okay? So let's go ahead and get into my commentary and discussion on it. So first things first. Again, the, the term that we're talking about, Adelphos or Adelphe, meaning brother or sisters in our English translations. There is truth that the term can mean something more than a brother or sister from the same mother. Now, BDAG, and BDAG is a Greek lexicon, um, whenever you learn Greek and you want to get the Cadillac of lexicons, BDAG is the place to go. Um, BDAG lists two entries for the term, a male from the same womb and a brother in terms of close affinity, fellow member, um, member or associate, kinsman, etc. Now, lay, L-E-H, is a Septuagint lexicon. And again, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament um, in sim simple terms. And that lexicon points out that it can mean brother in a literal sense, a metaphorical sense, kinsman, uh, fellowman, term of affection. And then I also consulted the Little Scott and Jones lexicon, which follows the same pattern, which is a lexicon of classical Greek literature. Now, even we can recognize that whenever brother is used in different cases in the New Testament, it doesn't always mean brother in a blood sense, right? Um, whenever Paul's writing to a community, he calls them brothers. He's, he's saying it in a spiritual sense. So we have to recognize that it's not that simple, right? We, we can recognize that there's different uses of it in that way. Um, and uses of the term in the Greek Old Testament, the, the Septuagint, demonstrate this um, as well. And this is usually what Catholics will point out, that Jacob's uncle, Laban, is called Jacob's Adelphos, which is what we would translate as brother uh, in the New Testament, or what we understand as brother in the New Testament, and that's in Genesis 29, 12. And so you can see that that word can be used in a different sense. And Abraham's nephew, Lot, is also called his Adelphos in Genesis 14, 14, and Genesis 14, 16. So that's the Old Testament. Now, these are isolated, and even Bauer states as much. The, these are not a widespread use in the Septuagint. These are two, well, technically four sparse examples that I could find that are cited by Catholics. Um, some have argued that this term is never used for cousins in the New Testament. And as far as I could tell, whenever I was looking um, through the text, I couldn't find any either. And at the same time, Paul in Colossians is happy to specify that there is a cousin of Barnabas in Colossians 4.10 with a different term uh, that, as far as I can tell, only has that one occurrence. And I've seen, I've seen Protestants appeal to that, saying they could have used this term to indicate Jesus had cousins. And that term is uh, anepsios, opposed to adelphos or adelphe. Um, so 
this is not to say that Adele Foss or Adele Faye does not have a range of meaning, right? It can mean fellow Israelites, such as in Acts 7-2, or a fellow human being in the Sermon of the Mount. But as New Testament scholars have stated, they, they can't find an instance where it's used for cousins in that sense. Um, and a difficult reality is that the cousin that we do know of, the cousin of Jesus that we do know of, John the Baptist is never referred to in a familial sense. So that, that's kind of difficult because if they had called him a cousin with Anepsios or they called him a cousin with Adelphos, then we would have a little bit of a better understanding, right? So well, what is the key here? The key is always context then. And that's really what it goes back to no matter what, whenever it comes to like word studies, um, whenever it comes to a term, the, the definitions that a lexicon gives you are the more common definitions. A word can be used in a context that it's not normally used in, but that is the exception, not the rule. And so by the New Testament period, in the way that we see it used in the New Testament, it should be assumed to be brothers um, by, by all accounts. Those few occurrences in the Septuagint are, are interesting, but again, they're exceptional, not the rule. So let's talk a little bit about the text. There are a number of passages where Jesus is said to have brothers and sisters, but we're going to focus on one text first, uh, and that's Matthew 13, 55 through 56. And the text says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? When then did this man get all these things? So the context obviously eliminates the option of fellow Israelites in view, right? We, we know that that's not the use of this term because we have Jews speaking to Jews and they're asking about Jesus's family to question his ministry. Like, how is Jesus the one that we know, his family, we know him, how is he the one who's doing all these things and who knows all these things about theology or um, things of that nature, right? Further, I would say that it's hard to understand how the understanding of cousin would fit into this context, uh, because there's a specific reference to both Joseph and Mary, right? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And then immediately after that, his brothers and sisters are mentioned. Um, so the, they're all tightly knit in this unit, and it wouldn't make sense to me for this to be speaking about Jesus's cousins when it's so specific regarding Joseph and Mary. Why would it mention his cousins, but not his cousin's parents, and mention his parents. It seems unnatural to come to that conclusion. And the same thing occurs in Mark 6, 3, which says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Now, again, it makes little sense to me anyway, for this to mean cousin when there's no invoking of the so-called cousin's parents, but instead they're tightly close to Mary in particular and Jesus. Is this not the carpenter who is the son of Mary and the brother of James? It doesn't make sense for that to be cousin. Um, in fact, out of the passages where Jesus is mentioned with brothers and sisters, and we're talking uh, Matthew 12, 46, Matthew 12, 47, Matthew 13, 55, Mark 3, 31, Mark 3, 32, Mark 6, 3, Luke 8, 9, Luke 8.20, John 2.12, and Acts 1.14, there are only three passages where they are not mentioned in conjunction with Mary, and that's uh, namely uh, John 7.3-10. through 10. So there's one passage. So it seems unlikely that this would denote cousins in the first place, because they're always with Mary. And it would be bizarre for this to be talking about, well, the, these are actually Mary's 
nieces and nephews traveling with Mary and who are always around Mary for whatever reason and are so tightly knit to Mary and Jesus in particular without any mentioning of the cousin's parents. Like, why not bring up, uh, you know, Jesus's uncle or aunt in this circumstance, right? So it seems unlikely that this word would denote cousin in the first place. So that argument, if we take that out, that means we're left with one more argument in the four position, and that is the idea that Joseph had children before he married Mary, and that these are Jesus's step-siblings. Um, and that is a viable position, but I would argue that it's dubious because the text has that close connection between these siblings and Mary specifically without reference to Joseph, who in tradition is considered to have passed away by the time of Jesus's adult ministry, and a person was often linked to their father more so than their mother. Um, so this position is still possible, but it seems more like speculative reading to build a whole dogma on, as the Catholics do. Um, so while the term Adelphos can be used in a wider sense than just brothers and sisters, there's no reason for us to assume that this is happening in these instances. It's either his half-siblings or it's his step-siblings, as far as I'm concerned. So let's move on to the next argument, and this time we'll start with the argument for the perpetual Virginia Mary. The argument goes like this. In John 19, 26 through 27, Jesus gives his disciple John the job of caring for his mother and designates them as mother and son. The argument here is that Jesus, if he had siblings, he would have given Mary to his siblings, not his disciple John. Uh, again, restated that if Jesus had siblings, then it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to give his mother to John. And for context, let me just read that real quick. So again, it's, um, John 19, 26 to 27, it says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And that is whenever Jesus is on the cross. And in the scene, there are two other Marys present. There's um, his mother's sister, Mary, and then there's Mary Magdalene. Uh, if that doesn't make things more confusing, there's a lot of Marys in Jesus' day. Um, so that's the argument for if Jesus had siblings, why did Jesus give John Mary to take care of? The argument against this notion is actually pretty simple. Um, the argument against it is that Jesus entrusted Mary to John because at the foot of the cross, there's only one disciple there. There's only one man there and it's John. His other disciples had, had left him. And from the Gospels, we don't know of any of his brothers and sisters who had believed in him. We know later on that James, who is arguably the brother of Jesus, right, depending on which view you take, um, believed in him eventually and became a leader in the Church of Jerusalem. But here, at this point, it was John. So it would be logical to assume that John was entrusted with Mary because of, firstly, his loyalty. He's at the cross whenever everyone had left and his belief in Christ. Because why would you give your, your mother to someone who doesn't believe in your very mission, right? Um, especially the mission we're talking about. That is uh, one of eternal consequence, especially whenever Jesus is stresses that, you know, people are going to be greatly divided um, because of me. So I find that here's my general discussion on that. I find the against argument just as compelling as the for argument here, if not more so. I think in his dying moments when nobody else is present at the cross, it would be sensical for Jesus to make the request that his mother be taken care of by the, the male 
who is present and who he trusts, who is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Um, I think that makes perfect sense. I think it is still a little bit speculative to say that she must have not had other children because of this event. Here's the last one, the last of the big three arguments we'll discuss today, and we're going to mix the against and for. I'm just going to summarize it. The last of the big arguments deals with the text in Matthew 125, which states that Joseph, quote, knew her not until she had born a son, end quote. Of course, it's talking about Joseph in relation to Mary, and the term knew here is a euphemism for sexual intercourse, uh, and thus one can ascertain the debate, right? Those against the perpetual virginity of Mary would state that this text saying until indicates that sexual relations happened but just after the birth of Jesus, right? He didn't know her until she had born a son, which would logically mean that he had known her after she had a son. Those for the perpetual virginity of Mary would state that one cannot determine that Mary and Joseph had sexual relations on the basis of this text. Basically, we just cannot know. In fact, this is kind of what John Calvin says in the point. Um, who, again, was kind of agnostic on this particular doctrine. Now, to be fair, the text's overall stress is that Isaiah 7.14 would be fulfilled. That is, Mary would be a virgin even at the point of giving birth. And so that, that is important. And one sidebar that I thought was interesting is that whenever I look through commentaries from Christians on this text throughout church history, even, again, Calvin himself, they looked at this text and the, one of the first things they say is that this does not mean that they had relations. So it seems to me... They had this need to justify it, which you can take that as you want. Uh, that was just an interesting observation. Um, so it, it really could be concluded that the only way to see this as implying that there were no relations after the birth of Jesus is if one places the tradition upon the text. I mean, someone could fairly say that. Now, much is made about the Greek phrase translated as until here, um, saying that it's a type of idiom, that doesn't necessarily denote something would actually occur, but this is overstated, and I'm surprised that it's used, especially if you look through the text of Matthew and the use of the phrase. And this is to say that I think that's a little bit of a stretch of an argument. You could you could go back and say, this text doesn't say whether or not they had relations after or not. And that's true, but at the same time, it, it kind of logically implies that they did. That, that as husband and wife who consummated their marriage, they had sexual relations, just not until after Jesus was born. I think that's a significant deduction, and I, I guess the only way you can really argue against that is if you take the Proto-Evangelium of James that we talked about last week as being historically accurate and reliable which, if you don't remember, basically the idea was that that um, Gnostic or um, apocryphal work of the New Testament implied that Mary took a vow to virginity for all of her days and that Joseph was just kind of an old man who was there to take care of her. Um, I think that's, that's, a, that's a shaky foundation for, for doctrine. That's, that's what I say. It's kind of interesting that it's appealed to because it is apocryphal and it does have Gnostic overtones, but what do you do? So here are my conclusions, which th this episode turned out about 20 minutes. That's not too bad. Anyway, um, we have briefly looked at the big three arguments for and against the perpetual Virginia Mary. And uh, hopefully these are the ones that you see 
being thrown around everywhere. And hopefully it lets you, whenever you see someone using either the for or against it, lets you think, well, you know, it's a little bit more complex in the way that the person's framing it. That's kind of the point of this discussion, right? So what are my conclusions? Theologically, I view the position of Mary as a perpetual virgin as unlikely. I find its scriptural justification lacking overall, which is fine for Catholicism because of how it views scripture and tradition. But as a Protestant who, who gives the final say to the text, I, I find it difficult to justify. Um, given that the view likely developed in the midst of a culture that had a great emphasis on celibacy, uh, that can easily explain where it came from more so than the text. Um, the view seems to be only justified by taking this long held tradition and placing it onto the text. And I don't particularly find it compelling. Now, as I said, in part one, I do not find it to be a doctrine that one cannot hold. And so this is to say, if you see a Protestant who holds to the perpetual virginity of Mary, let him have it. Because again, this is a position that's been held by Christians for, for many, many years, including the big reformers, right? Well, maybe Calvin. We don't, we can't say for certain. Calvin, Calvin was interesting on things like that sometimes. Uh, he, some, sometimes he was just outright. And other times you're like, what did he believe here? Like the, the scope of the atonement. That's a big debate. Anyway, um, so yeah, I don't think that we should be calling anyone a heretic if they hold to that position because that would be calling many people in church history a heretic. Um, especially whenever most of the church did indeed hold to it, and many people were very slow to turn away from it. Now, in that debate that I'm going to link in the description, James White argues, you know, if people had the accessibility that we have to the original languages and to, you know, searching software, that they probably wouldn't have held to it. And I think there's something to be said about that. We have access in a way that they simply did not. Um, and that's, that's an interesting um, thing to point out. Now... This is the part that my fellow Protestants want to hear. I think it is absolutely foolish for this to be a dogma that you have to hold in order to be a part of the church. And that's where Catholicism fails. They, they dogmatize such particulars like this that really shouldn't be dogmatized. And what are you going to do? You can't, you can't backtrack on it, not with their ecclesiology. So what are you going to do? But that said, I think it's foolish for, you know, the Protestant to be dogmatic on it, to, to say, hey, you can't hold to that, otherwise you're a heretic. So that you can flip that both ways. But anyway, I hope that this episode proved interesting and beneficial to help you navigate this topic going forward. I hope that you, you see the merits in, in making sure that you're, you're separating Marian doctrines from each other. Because this doctrine is different from the Immaculate Conception, and they are at different levels whenever it comes to what they say about Mary and how they say them. Uh, just as well, in part one, we talked about Theotokos, uh, Mary as the God-bearer, and how that's more of a Christological statement than a Marian statement. We should not be afraid of using that uh, with the qualification that it says more about Jesus and less about exalting Mary. And I'll say this, uh, the, the tendency is for, for people to look at a system like Catholicism and want to overcorrect. They they have idolatrous tendencies towards Mary. Therefore, Mary is something that we avoid whenever historically that's not how the church did it. We can be balanced. We don't have to be scared of Mary. Um, and so on and so forth. Um, 
so yeah, check out that um, debate in the description and have a great, great weekend. If you enjoy Crisis the Cure, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Crisis the Cure. We are subscriber supported. Of course, I always say we because it's kind of weird to just say I, but I, I do run this by myself. I have a tech guy who set up the foundation of the website, meaning like he gave me the access to it, but I have to build the website. Uh, I'm building Historia Ecclesiastica. I'm updating them. I'm editing. I'm recording. I'm editing my recordings. I'm researching, obviously, and things of that nature and making content, PDFs and graphics and everything else. And um, if you like what I am putting together, consider becoming a patron. It means a lot. Um, Ideally, I'd like to put more time into this and be able to expand and do more with it, um, however that looks in the future. So that's that. God bless you all and have a great one.